you don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. control. All right. Welcome, everyone. We are back with our second AMA. The year is coming to a close, and I think that always lends itself to a little bit of reflection. So I figured I'd maybe just take a moment to say thank you to all of you. And I think it's often easy for me to get a little bit hyper-focused on the the scale of this whole project and the audience and its growth or lack of growth and being too fixated on, on the numbers and just wanting to to reach a broader audience that I sometimes, it clouds my judgment or it, it just distracts me from the gratitude that is warranted for, for those of you that, that are a part of this thing and that do show up regularly and, and that do get value from it because even if it's just one person, that does mean a lot to me and it does mean something. And that was the whole point in the first place. So yeah, just for any of you, whether this is your first time or your 10th time or your last time, uh, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad to have you, but yeah. Today's an Ask Me Anything, so I've got some questions here lined up, and we'll see how many we get to. I think I maybe got to three last time, so I'll see if I can do better or be a little bit, uh, show a little bit more restraint on some of these questions, but y'all know how it is if you're here. <laughs> Tend to be a, a touch on the long-winded side, but I think I will go ahead and start with one that I actually wanted to get to last time and did not, which is are you optimistic about free speech in the future? And yeah, that's that's kind of a big question for sure. And I think th there's maybe two ways of looking at it. And then one is more so, I guess, in the more conventional sense of what we are now seeing often take place online and, and on these social media platforms where an unfortunate degree, I guess, in, in my opinion, of our lives and is, is starting to take place, but the kind of seemingly insurmountable problem we're facing of how we, I guess, control or audit what people say online, what sort of ideas we want to allow to exist in the world or, or what sort of things we deem unforgivable, unsayable, unsavory, or, or just all the way down to downright illegal. And the fact that there are a, a select group of, of individuals in these large media and tech companies who are having to make these decisions is, um, let's just say I don't envy them. I really don't. And, and I think it is quite, these decisions are quite complicated and, and we all can agree that there have to be limits to free speech even those of us who really consider it to be a, a fundamentally important principle that there, there are legal guidelines and there are legal limitations to that. So obviously anyone doing anything criminal online doesn't matter that it's online. It, it still is something that has to be to some degree controlled, but there's certainly an argument that maybe beyond that, these platforms might be better off by not doing anything beyond stopping people from doing illegal things. But I think we all also can, can agree that there's certain things we'd rather not see, or there's certain things that we'd rather not feel, think, experience, and that's going to differ from person to person. And these, a lot of it is, is unfortunately tied up in politics and, and speaks to the nature of our political climate that nearly everything is politicized in a way. So any issue that comes up, it, it, there seems to be kind of, unfortunately, two ways of seeing it. And since 
since there is this fundamental, or maybe not fundamental, but this unavoidable bias within these companies that they are a bit left-leaning, it does present problems of, I guess I would say fairness. And I think for me, it generally isn't particularly inconvenient because of my personal politics and the fact that I generally lean a bit left and I'm pretty moderate. So I'm, I'm typically not too upset by much of what is happening out there, but I'm, I'll be the first to acknowledge that, that my political views are, are somewhat unique to me and, and are a bit nuanced and that I can't necessarily, I, I, I won't make any attempt to suggest that that's how everyone ought to think or that that is the measure by which the, the speech of the whole world ought to be audited. And so when people who are making decisions on this front generally have a certain leaning, you're going to see that they're sort of cracking down on things that are maybe a little bit more politically conservative and maybe turning a little bit of a blind eye to things that are a little bit more in their camp because that's that's just human nature. And I think what people are generally looking for is, is fairness and, and is objectivity, which is of course, a, at least in my opinion, a good pursuit, but much easier said than done. And we're all just humans who are, would like to see a world that, that generally more aligns with the way that we think. And so I guess all that to say, I think what exists online and on social media is is really tricky and complicated. And I, I think it's going to continue to be a problem where these companies are having to make these really difficult decisions that maybe they didn't really expect to have to be making when they started. And obviously there's, there's a massive influence and power that they have now, especially on Twitter and that being sort of synonymous with the news, synonymous with information, synonymous with life for a lot of people. And, and I would push back against that notion, but it is how a lot of people experience the world and how they develop their views and, and how they process things. And since it is such a powerful space, it's, it starts to question the notion of, of Twitter just being a private company that, that can do whatever it wants and that can make its own rules, which I think largely I stand by. And if they want to create a certain environment, it, they're kind of free to do it. But at a certain point, I guess the question is more so, is there some sort of ethical obligation for them to try to err on the side of ob objectivity, to try to create a fair landscape, to try to create one that treats everyone equally and that limits people's freedoms as much as possible. And, uh, I don't know. I, I can't really say that I feel like there's an obligation there. And of course, people can always go elsewhere, right? If if a business rejects you in an unfair way or treats you unfairly, I think that is one of the great things about America is that you, you can just go somewhere else and there's always going to be options. With the social media platforms, there's not as many <laughs> and it's, there's, there's no other Twitter. I mean, sure. You can, you can say things on Facebook, you can say things on Instagram, you can do whatever, but generally these companies seem to be a little bit unlocked up in their decision-making and their politics. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a clusterfuck, but I guess to bring it back to free speech more broadly, I, I think in time, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that we'll correct for some of these things that I think there will be balance in time and, and in retrospect, we'll, we'll see that, okay, maybe in, in this moment, in this, let's just even say five year span, we crack down a little bit too hard on certain things and that in time that there will be an ebb and flow to our social political landscape. And let's just say everyone will have their, <laughs> have their time in which they feel like there's an overstep from the other side. So I think in that regard, I'm, I'm a little bit less concerned in a long-term sense. And even something like cancel culture, which gets thrown around a lot, I think in a way it's, it, it was like many sort of political slogans, if you will, this idea that it came into existence in the first place is probably a good thing that we started to question notions of 
you know, how do we want to think about and criticize certain ways of speaking, certain words, certain people's actions, and, and creating an environment where people feel compelled to really speak honestly about how things make them feel and about the sort of world that we want to live in and things that we want to promote and that people can be held accountable for their actions. I think at base, it was a well-intended idea, but I think most people now, and I guess this was what I was trying to get around to, the fact that cancel culture is something that to some degree is starting to carry a negative connotation that canceling people or that deplatforming people, that, that saying that people shouldn't have the right anymore to speak their mind, to, to, to speak freely, to even potentially have a platform, have a place to speak. Not that people are necessarily entitled to that, but that there are limitations and that at a certain point there's going to be this sort of perverse incentive incentive structure that people are going to take advantage of and recognize that, Hey, if I don't like what someone's saying, I can, I can stop them from, from even trying to say that. And that's, we don't want that in the hands of, of of psychopathic people, right? That they can create a world in which anytime anyone says something that offends me or upsets me, I can just get rid of that. I can I can make it cease to exist, even though this is the world that we live in and people think this way. And in a lot of degrees, we need to confront that and acknowledge it and and, and maybe even you know, try to have a conversation with these people that, that seem to, to be so estranged from us in an ideological sense, but I think we are seeing evolution on that front. And I think in time, we'll see more balance. But I think the thing that I maybe am more concerned about in regards to free speech that is a little bit more conceptual is, I guess, goes beyond this whole like big brother thought crime sort of notion. And, uh, and though I think, I guess it's the sort of idea that started with banned books and then became banned speakers and, and now has become banned social media profiles. I think that's always been a zero sum game. And there's, there's a logic to that that maybe I, I don't need to spell out at this time, but I, I do wonder, I do wonder what sort of downstream effects the sort of notion on, on an individual level that individuals will in time start to feel like maybe they they ought to not speak their minds even behind closed doors so i think it's one thing to say okay we we have these notions of i shouldn't say this thing publicly or i shouldn't say this thing when i'm at work i shouldn't say this sort of thing around certain company or i shouldn't speak freely around certain company but i think as long as people in private or in in when they're having good faith conversations, feel like it's okay to maybe make some mistakes, to really ask difficult questions, to say things that they're not 100% confident about so that those sorts of things can be audited by their peers and people that they trust and so that we can have a real healthy discourse that you then maybe can take out into the world, out into public and, and feel more confident about. I think as long as that happens, we'll still be okay. And I think maybe that's why I have some optimism about what's happening in the public sphere is that I do feel like people are still trying behind closed doors. And a lot of the reason I started this project in the first place was to try to maybe bring some of that more out into the light. But yeah, I think in general, people are making an effort. And I feel like the conversations that I'm having with people, quote unquote, privately, still have a good degree of balance and that average people aren't really signing off for a lot of the stuff that seems to play on social media or, or that these sort of, uh, I guess, suggested mainstream beliefs that a lot of people do have questions about it and that they're not just feeling like, hey, it's it's this cut and dry, can't say this, can't say that, shouldn't think this way. There's there's one way of viewing these things. There's one way of behaving ethically. There's There's one way of being right. I think that's not how most people really think, but we think about it from more of a generational perspective and what will happen to, to kids growing up right now who, who are seeing these sorts of things play out online and maybe start to internalize some of these ideas that, that maybe even this sort of basic enlightenment ideals of, 
of the sovereignty of, of the individual and of free speech on some level, even though that's not really where it started, that it is important for, for us to get our ideas out and to speak honestly with one another, even if we aren't fully informed. And that is the real way to combat ignorance is to, to, to speak in a, in a genuine way and, and be able to make mistakes and to be able to be forgiven for the things that we do that hurt others and that make others feel uncomfortable and to grow through that. I, I'm, I'm a little worried that, that maybe in time some of that will be lost. And if well-intended people cease to be free thinkers publicly as well as behind closed doors, I think that's, that's where my optimism starts to die is that it, I think it's one thing to be worried about punishment or, or ridicule, but to believe that it's really the right thing to do, to not speak up and to sort of just take the pill on what you're being told is right, or to just sort of nod your head in agreement because certain people or certain ideologies or, or certain groups are telling you that this is the way you ought to think, and to not question it and to think, it is fundamentally wrong to do so. I, that's certainly something I can't get behind. And I, I do worry that if that starts to happen, th that is where you, you start to get more so into these post-apocalyptic big brother ideas of, of a society in which people really are policed in a, in a very subtle and, and very unconscious way. And that this war of ideas that is always going on publicly starts to bleed into personal life and the way in which we interact with each other and our ability to be honest and to be vulnerable and to make mistakes and to understand forgiveness and growth. I, I worry about that for sure. And I think if we're beginning to question if it's even worth it to broach the most difficult and, and divisive topics of our time, outside the framework of our socio-political echo chambers. And if we really feel, we begin to feel as though it's not worth it, given the massive existential risks we continue to face as a species, I don't think that's a worry we can afford to succumb to. So in short, that's, that's kind of where I am on free speech right now. But I guess we'll move on here to a little bit of a change of pace. So I got a question that says, you talk a lot about being an observer of your thoughts and emotions. Can you describe what it's like for you and speak to any focal points or mantras that make this possible? So I'm sure this is definitely something that I've spoken to and, and that has been on my mind a lot in the past year or two, and it certainly comes up in conversation. Though, to be fair, I think sometimes this framing of the observer is, is a bit of a misnomer. Though quite helpful as a framing in everyday life to create a certain sense of detachment, or not even create, but to, to bring an awareness to a, a very real detachment from our thoughts and emotions as something that we ought to identify with or judge or moralize. And, and I think that framing of the observer as opposed to getting totally stuck in our, our narratives and in our default mode, I think is a valuable tool. But at the same time, I think often what I'm actually really trying to speak to without really getting into the weeds about it is, is more of a non-dual practice, which tries to actually cut through this subject-object illusion that we often live our lives by. And so it's not even necessarily to say that they're, that we or, or I or you or, or however we want to frame that is some sort of separate entity that is observing things per se, it's to, it's to recognize that, or, or maybe even bring into question all of the projections and framings that we, that we put onto things and all the way down to 
something as simple as subject object that if I'm looking at something, this idea that it's across the room and it is this, it is the object. I am the subject. And in, in meditation, I think you can get a glimpse of, of what happens when you pressure that notion and you, you look for the subject as opposed to just assuming that it's there. You, you look for an eye, you look for an observer, you look for the thinker of your thoughts. And again, I'm not really asking anyone to take this on faith, but you, there is a recognition that there's not really anything fundamentally different there, that things are just appearing, that our thoughts, our feelings, our physical sensations, what we hear, whatever we experience, in a way, all exists on the same plane. And that it's it's often easy to live life within that story of that there's there, there's some sort of core to you, that there's an an eye, a mind, a heart, a soul, whatever you want to call it, that is ultimately authoring your thoughts and emotions, and that it, it ought to be identified with or judged. And I think that's where a lot of our unhelpful thought patterns come from, but to simply experience things on an even plane and not attach anything to, to any of it, to just notice the, the fundamental sameness of experiencing consciousness without any attachments or, or framings. And it's, it's much easier said than done. But I think what your, your next thought is, is just as much a mystery to you as the next sound that you will hear. And in many ways, is just as much out of your control. And I think it's, it's just easy and, and to some degrees intuitive to treat our thoughts differently and to attach meaning to them as opposed to attaching meaning to this pain or, or cool sensation in your foot. But at, at a basic level, when you're able to really experience them without distraction, there, there is a sameness there. There, there is a, a singular plane that I think you, you really just have to experience to maybe understand what I'm getting at because it is a bit abstract, but yeah, I think it is to just try to cut through as, as much as possible and, and to, to not necessarily alter or suppress anything, but make an earnest attempt at, at having an objective curiosity about our own experience and to recognize that everything is, is just appearing. And how you think about free will probably dictates that next step of what sort of control that we do have what the sort of control that we have in, in response as opposed to reaction. And, but at base, if we really pay attention, everything is just happening. Everything is just appearing. And it doesn't have to be more than that. And I think that's, it's maybe one of the more fundamental insights inside of, of a meditation or a mindfulness practice is being able to I guess I'll bring it back to observe because there is this sort of barrier within language that, that we have to, in order for to make sense, we have to use terms like you and I, and we, our language is structured to have reference to something as opposed to just treating everything equally. So I, that's, that's maybe why I use observe. And again, I think it still is helpful to think about observing your thoughts and emotions as this sort of objective third party, as opposed to getting caught within them and in whatever narrative they we are attaching to it. And just to be able to take a step back and say that this is all just happening right now. And, and how can I process this? How can I contextualize this as, as objectively as I can and not moralize it, not get upset with the fact that it is true and see if there's a bit, uh, see if there's an opportunity to simply accept it and, and move forward given whatever information it provides to us. But yeah, ultimately I think that that is the essence 
of what I'm often trying to get at when I when I speak of an observer, or I just speak of observing generally. But I think ultimately it, it is something that that you have to experience, and it, it only really takes once to to recognize, to really pressure these notions, and to look for these things that we just assume are there. To to look for a thinker, to look for an ultimate author, for to to look for to look for the subject that is experiencing the object, and just to flip that framing and is can be quite meaningful to 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 realize that maybe all these things that we're assuming are true and that we've learned to be true or that we've developed these thought patterns or framings over time that maybe they're not fundamentally true and we don't necessarily have to operate by these principles if we're able to be to some degree free of distraction and to be in touch with what experience is really like at base all right, so I think that's a fair place to stop there. Let's see. So this question really caught my eye. And I'm not really sure how to think about it, but but I think it is a I think it is a potentially insightful thought experiment. So we'll see where it goes. If you were to find yourself without your wife, detached from your family, unable to work, etc. How would you process this and how would you move forward? So it's, I read it essentially as a question of what if everything goes wrong in an instant? And that maybe luckily, <laughs> at least just simply in the context of answering this question is something that I, I, I do live in, in some contact with. I, I think about this potential reality quite often is what I'm trying to say. And so this idea of, of what if I, I lose everything that you would conventionally give value to in life? Because, I mean, not, not to be morbid, but I, I do think that that could always happen. And it's not that I necessarily could ever truly be prepared for that, but I try to live my life in a way that I'm not totally reliant on the ways in which I've been lucky this far in life, the things that I do have, the fact that I, I have my health and that I have a loving wife and that I have a family that I care about very much and I'm able to work, I'm, I'm able to do lots, lots of things that I love and enjoy. All of these things are, are great sources of gratitude in my life and I try to recognize them every day. But at the same time, I think in some ways, having an, an experience that having a, a level of satisfaction, a level of contentment that is purely derived from those factors is maybe not a zero sum game, but is, uh, is kind of a single point of failure and not to look at it like too clinically, but these things could always change. And I consider myself very lucky to have them but I don't have any control over the fact, the facts of life and, and how harsh and difficult it can be and that anything could happen to anyone at any time completely out of their control. And I guess this question really sort of pushes me towards a recent observation or what one might call a breakthrough that I had a couple of weeks ago. I guess anyone who listens to this probably knows that I've, I've had a little bit of a rough year or at least past couple of months. It's certainly been up and down in a lot of different ways, but yeah, I, I definitely was not having my best. Actually, let's be honest. I had the worst month probably of my life about a month or two ago. And coming out of that, I, I found myself trying to pressure this idea of what it would take for the next month to be the best month of my life. And, and that's maybe a little bit of a silly notion, but it was a thought experiment I was playing with. And what would that really take? And would it really have to be utterly dependent on what actually happened in that month? Like if, if my greatest dreams were actualized or, or my biggest problems in life right now were, were solved in an instant, would that automatically make it the best, most 
satisfying and gratifying month of my life? Or, or would it be something more deeply internal and something that would more so be derived from my perspective in the way that I viewed it? And so ultimately, it, it, I guess where it ties in and has a little bit more relevance, I got to this notion of realizing that even if everything did change and if everything did sort of devolve on every front in my life that, and this is something I more so just experience. I'm not saying it's fundamentally true per se in an objective sense, but I had this overwhelming feeling that I would be okay regardless of what happened, even if I, I did lose everything or that if, if all the things in which I'm, I may be waiting on to work out or to improve or, or if all of them actually got worse, if really sticking to this hypothetical, if, if I lost it all, if I wasn't able to work, if, I, if my health fell apart, if I became estranged from all of those that I love or even lost them, that, that still that could be enough, that experience at base and in what it's like to, to be a human being or at least to be whatever it is that I'm experiencing could fundamentally be enough regardless of what actually happened within, within this framework that you might call my life. And so in a lot of ways, I, I guess my question, or not my question, my answer would be, I don't fucking know. <laughs> you know, I, I don't claim to be the sort of person that even in light of this, this moment that I had a couple of weeks ago that really was quite profound and meaningful and continues to have a, a profound effect on my life. I don't claim to, to know what the future holds and, and even things as far as my internal state, the way that my brain operates, the way that I exist in this world or in any other plane of existence could, could also change in an instant. So I don't really know what that's going to be like, but I, I do have a hunch that I would be okay and that I have had the opportunity to experience certain things and, and to develop certain practices that have allowed me to have a certain acceptance of reality for whatever that looks like and to be grateful for existence independent of actual more more conventionally valued variables where it's I'm, I'm grateful to be alive and i'm satisfied and and i believe that ex or, or better yet i have experienced that existence is fundamentally enough in and of itself and that's not because I'm very lucky and I have a lot of wonderful people in my life and that I have a lot to be grateful for in a more conventional sense that I grew up in the US or, or that I, I was given a very good education or any of these things. The, the fact that I have a dog that I love very much who is, brings so much joy to my life, all of these things that you might say the average person would be very happy to have again, I'm incredibly grateful for them, but I don't think my temperament and my ability to accept reality for whatever it is and to accept what it's like to be me, regardless of what happens, regardless of all the, the wonderful things that I do have in my life, I, I would hope that that would carry through. And if I mean, obviously I would be devastated and in, in many ways I would be destroyed, but I would like to believe at least that I could still find this on its most basic level to, to, to be enough and how I would move forward is, is certainly a mystery, but I do live my current life to some degree in contact with, with this notion that, that this could happen and that life is not fundamentally fair or truly within our control. And so we, to some degree, 
the the sort of life that we live is is dependent on our level of preparation and resilience for the eventuality that is pain and, and suffering and and tragedy in, in in what this all is and to be able to 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 find a space of peace and equanimity that is not based on any sort of external or even internal on some level stimuli that I I think I'm certainly not (laughs) claiming to be some sort of enlightened individual who is just beyond the the difficulties of everyday life because though you, you wouldn't necessarily call this sort of tragedy everyday life I think even the most ordinary lives are full of loss and suffering and and little tragedies of every kind that can defeat and and really chip away at at anyone and um whether by by luck or or by design uh not that those things are mutually exclusive at all but yeah I, i just think that our ability to accept things and to find peace and to find equanimity is is really the measure of of what one's life will be like in the end and in what sort of response they they may give to to being asked at any given time how, how their life is going or how they feel about where they are or even just the moment to moment experience of of being them and and how and how others might be able to understand or process that is is really derived from an ability to to be resilient on that front and uh, yeah again i i have no idea what that would really be like and i in no way intend to belittle anyone's experience who's faced any sort of tragedy of, of this scale and it's perfectly possible that i would just be crushed you know beyond <laughs> beyond repair and that it, it might consume me and, and be the end of me but I think it's possible that 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 it's that I would be okay. And that feels a little bit weird to say, but hopefully I'll never have to find out. Right. Let's see what else we've got. We'll try this one. Do you think regret is healthy in any way? And I guess a follow-up question on that front is, is there anything you would change about your past? So I think my initial reaction would just be no. I I don't think regret ever really serves us or, or I guess in the direct framing of this question is healthy. But I think that there's a fine line between wishing something hadn't happened and not being interested in experiencing it again. And so there's plenty of things that I would, if I had the choice, I would not go back and and live through again. There's plenty of things that I would, I would not project upon my worst enemy that that I've experienced. At least I would hope to think so. I don't really have a worst enemy, but um, yeah, I think regret, very similar to guilt, is something that only weighs on us over time and only becomes something that we carry and even if in small ways holds us back and i i mean to be fair i think a lot of it comes from any individual's level of satisfaction with who they currently are or who they currently are and if you're generally satisfied with that then there's an easy sort of logic to it to say well if anything were different, I might not be where I am. And that in some way, everything I've experienced has, has formed who I currently am and and where I currently am in life. And so maybe let's just not fuck with that. And then to regret is to say, if I would go back, I would do it differently. That could simply potentially change the future, which just maybe seems not worth it, even if we have situations that we would hope we would handle better now or that we would handle better in the future. 
and obviously there's a value in, in reflection and recognizing that, recognizing the ways in which we failed others, the ways in which we failed ourselves, that that is fundamental to growth being able to look back and say, hmm, maybe I could have handled that better. Maybe I will in the future, but, but to regret it, I feel like at least is to say that I, I wish it hadn't happened that way, or that if I could go back, I, I would change it. And I don't know, well, A, we'll never have that opportunity. So it, it really doesn't, I think as something that isn't either present or at least future oriented, I think it, it has limitations in the way that it can serve us. Because if you're just looking back and, and wishing that things had been different, I, I think that's just sort of a zero sum game. But yeah, I mean, I think there's fundamental limitations to regret as, as an emotion, if, if that's a fair way of framing it, though I think it's understandable and, and something that we ought to face if we do have, if we experience regret and to maybe understand why we feel that way and to question that and to maybe question if it's worth reconsidering the way that we think about it and more so saying, I, I just want to make sure I never behave like that again, or I want to make sure that I am more aware in the future. I, I want to make sure I never put myself in that sort of situation again, or to even you know, allow myself to be hurt like that again. I think these are perfectly healthy things to do, but to look backwards and to wish that we could change things, I, I think is just a, as, as surefire as a as any way to to produce negative emotions that we can't actually do anything to solve or process. And yeah, I, I don't really know where that leads us. And so for me, no, I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't really change anything about my past. And again, there's a lot of things. I think we all have incredibly cringeworthy experiences and we have things that we're not proud of. We have things that we probably never told anyone and probably never will because we maybe hardly even have access to these memories anymore because of how shameful they are or because of how difficult they are or because of how painful they are. And that's, that's very human, but yeah, we, 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 until we maybe exist in a world where we can go back and change things, which is a whole other rabbit hole that I won't jump down. But as, as we currently live, yeah, I mean, it, I think it, it it just only has one real endpoint, which is, which is just feeling bad and not being able to really move on from that, and just having to carry that in the long term is maybe just more speaks to it's kind of the antithesis of actually processing it, and if we've hurt someone, actually apologizing or, or making amends, or if we've hurt ourselves doing the same for, for whatever side of that we're on. And it's something I, I mention a lot, but I think a lot of my ideas here are supported by my perspectives on free will and the fact that I, I think we we generally handle every situation to the best of our ability in that moment. And we can want more for ourselves. We can want better of others even. But in, in any given moment, we, we are what we are. And if we could actually go back, not as our current selves, but as ourselves at the time, things would play out exactly as they did again. And it, it wouldn't be any different. So again, it's, it's kind of a zero-sum game thinking about it in that way. If, if you're someone who, who sees at least a conventional view of, of free will as a little bit illusory. And, and I think we, we really are just all trying to do our best with whatever tools and resources and, and awareness we have. And so again, it's, it's not an excuse to, for there not to be consequences or for people not to learn from their experiences or to grow. It's, it's just to say that, that sometimes we have to accept that things happened how they happened. And then that was the only way that they could have happened given those exact conditions. And that we can try to change conditions, we can try to change things within our environments, our physical systems, we, we can 
alter variables that will make things ideally work out in a, in a better fashion in the future. But looking backwards, there's just not a whole lot for us there, at least in regards to, to things like regret and guilt, as opposed to let's reflect. All right. So I guess this question here kind of relates to where I just was. So, so maybe I'll just continue there. And it actually also relates to, to an earlier question about free speech. So maybe this will be one to tie everything together. But is there anything that you consider unforgivable? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I, I don't think so. And maybe it's because I just haven't thought, you know, I haven't put enough thought into this to imagine up something that, that is so horrific that there's no, it's not even worth a conversation about sort of, um, redemption, if you will, or maybe not even that redemption has to be tied to forgiveness, but I'll see what I can unpack here. I think any sort of honest answer here or, or decent answer does have to come with a, a clarification of what we mean by forgiveness and, and, and its importance. And, and so I think, at least for me, to forgive certainly doesn't mean that things won't change going forward. It doesn't, it obviously doesn't mean to forget. It doesn't even mean to allow, let's just say, whoever hurt you or, or however we want to frame this to, to continue to be a part of your life. And, and this is just the way that I'm seeing it right now in this moment, but I feel like forgiveness is largely about freeing up the individual who, who has been hurt to not carry the weight of, of whatever insult occurred anymore. And, and it's unfortunate that the framing is, is often that way that it is sort of on the individual who has been hurt to process things and to relieve themselves of that burden that they will sort of indefinitely carry unless they are able to do whatever work is necessary to, to move on and to unburden themselves. But I, I do think to not forgive is to continue to allow whatever it is that hurts you to have some power over you. And, and again, it's not to to shame anyone for for not forgiving or for not really having the, the, the time or the space or the resource or, or whatever it is to forgive. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say that I'm someone who has experienced anything even close to the far ends of, of what pain can truly look like and what malicious intent and, and psychological torture and, and just bad faith in general can look like in this life. So it, it's maybe easy for me to say these sorts of things without having someone who has made it their mission to make my life miserable and have to try to process attempting to just put that beyond me so that I don't have to live with that way anymore. It's, it's obviously much easier said than done, but I think in principle, I have to say that I, I think that anything could be forgiven and th that of course has to have, I guess, requirements, right? That there are certain things you would need to see in order to forgive someone or certain things that would have to be experienced or processed for that to happen. But at the end of the day, I think, I don't know, I guess as I'm talking through it right now, I think in, in some ways it can exist in a vacuum for the person who has been hurt and their ability to say, or to potentially say, as difficult as it may be, that I still want the best for this person, regardless of what has happened, that I have some sort of fundamental humanistic perspective that, that as, as another sentient being, if you will, I, I still would prefer a world in which this person gets over their baggage, in which this person is able to understand the hurt that they've caused, 
and to be able to to grow and and to learn to simply be better and then to not hurt others again and that that would be the best thing for them to be able to potentially repair relationships and to make amends that I think to want that for someone who has hurt you is is sort of what it means to forgive them and again it's it's not it, it's much easier said than done but I think that is maybe what's at the base of it for me when I think about forgiveness is it's still wanting what's best for that person or being able to come around to that and, and even if that is to say within within the context of a relationship that the best thing you can do is to create distance is to set boundaries is to say this isn't working i can't do this anymore and to sort of give this person an ultimatum or, or to make them realize that some sort of growth or change on their part is necessary for them to have sustainable and healthy relationships in the future that that is putting their best interest in mind is is to is to set those boundaries and to simply forgive them in 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 sort of a naive way of, of just saying no matter what you do it's okay and things will just continue as as they are is is really to not look out for their best interest so i don't mean to suggest that everything is forgivable in that sense and that it's really just a matter of, of of you getting over yourself when you've been hurt it's it's not quite that simple but that is a dimension of it for sure is is what do you what is worth carrying for you and and, and can you find a way to move on from that and and, and then the other half is is still wishing them well for whatever that's worth and still hoping that maybe they can become the sort of person that you would want to have in your life. Um, not that you again can, can forget, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that in some way over some span of time, over some level of reflection and, and genuine, I guess, recognition but also just there being a real difference a, a, a felt and understood difference between the person that carried out this insult and the person that stands before you today and i guess i'm just sort of spewing these things out as dimensions of what i think it takes to truly apologize and to truly be forgiven is is to is to understand and to look at what happened with a a real sense of empathy for the person that you did hurt and that that isn't something that just happened and and so i think it often is, is something that never happens i think that's why people are often not forgiven is because they aren't able to to see truly why what they did was wrong and what it might take to repair that. But yeah, I mean, I, I say that all with the, the caveat of, of me maybe being too forgiving of a person. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I try not to carry a whole lot from my past and I try not to really hold a whole lot against people as far as me still having good intentions towards them. Even if I have to say, I, I can't really have this in my life right now because I still have to look out for my best interests as well. And, and I, I think it's best for the both of us to, to not continue in this manner or, or to set internal boundaries and say, okay, I forgive you, but things are different now. <laughs> but yeah, I, again, it, it, it's, it's spoken from the perspective of someone who, who may be, maybe gives people the benefit of the doubt a little too much. So we'll see it. It hasn't really bit me in the ass in a major way yet, but again, I think it, it does leave me in a place where I, I don't feel like I carry a lot of really any hatred or negative feelings in an ongoing sense towards anyone that has wronged me in the past. And I, I quite enjoy that, but 
that that also comes with with the i guess the disclaimer i gave before that i don't know that i've i've really been so wronged by by anyone in a way that was clearly intentional so i guess that's just me but that's what we're here for right <laughs> um yeah i guess i'll maybe just do one more and this is a little bit more of a sort of rapid fire question so i can i can maybe answer this quickly and then let you get out of here but someone asked do you have a go-to joke or comedian and i definitely don't have a go-to joke but i think this one's at the top of my mind and, and that's kind of why i chose this question i i'm, I'm definitely a big fan of comedy of stand-up for sure and the most recent show that i went to a couple geez, I don't know, a month or two ago was Christina Bozinski was in town and God, that was a fucking good show. I've always enjoyed her, her comedy and, and her perspective. And it'd been a long time since I've been to a live show. So it's not to say that she's maybe my favorite, but she's definitely up there. And I, I would advise I don't know if I honestly would advise her for anyone because it is a particular style that that might rub some people the wrong way. And I think I maybe lean a little bit towards comedy that's that's on the irreverent side that doesn't really pull its punches. And that, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, isn't isn't quite as popular as it used to be just as far as the fact that it makes some people feel uncomfortable. And that's that's understandable, too. But yeah, she's a she's a great comic. And, and I think she does something that is often I feel like overlooked in, in really great comedians, which is she balances this sort of irreverence and this sort of no holds barred onslaught in, in her act with a, a real sense of vulnerability and, and this level of awareness and, and desire to improve. And she's someone who's, who's been through a lot and who had a, a, let's just say difficult upbringing and parents who let's just say made things a bit difficult for her in a lot of ways and, and experienced a lot that for, for many would be hard to relate to, but for, for others, certainly so. And so I think she's someone who, who very much takes a perspective of just wanting to be better than her parents and to provide that for her children and a lot of her comedies is sort of based on being a mother and, and, and what that's like and, and her reflections on how she was raised and, and how she's trying to just make little improvements to fuck up her kids less and, and how she really is doing a lot of work to try to become a better person. And then for whatever that's worth, I think there's some, I think there's a lot of value there and that came through in her set, especially as she sort of brought it full circle at the end to, to speak to that she does often, you know, feel like a piece of shit. Yeah, you know? <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't feel like the best person, or even necessarily a good person. But she's trying, and she's trying to, to take baby steps. And, um, she's she's making us all fucking howl. And in the meantime, so, yeah, she's one of my favorites. I would definitely check her out. I think she's got a, a special or two on Netflix, and is is working on one right now. So, yeah. I would certainly put that on your radar if, if any of that sounds appealing. And you know what? I might not leave this one in, but this question kind of caught my eye and I'll answer it rather quickly without really answering it. So we'll see how that goes. But it's what paradoxes do you straddle most in life? And this one's very relevant to me right now because I just recently have been really consumed by the paradox of death and yeah that's a real fun one but um yeah i'll more so just sort of direct the audience to this is actually the title of a podcast by sam harris and it, it obviously addresses this paradox pretty pretty thoroughly but it's maybe only 30 minutes long or so so it's not it's not a super intensive listen and i guess i'll warn that it is intellectually incredibly challenging uh it's, it's a bit of a mind fuck and, and i had to listen to it a few times to 
to really get a grip on it, but it does in short, just really get at, I guess on the front end, it, it discusses how we think about death and, and how that can maybe be a regular part of our lives or how much the individual, average individual really thinks about the transient and infinite nature of everything and, and how that can be, doesn't have to be a morbid thing to think about death often. And it's something I personally really try to remind myself of often these days is that you just, you have a finite number of interactions with, with everyone, with everyone that you care about. And it's, it's, it's a simple notion, right? It's kind of the idea behind you only live once, but yeah, it's, it can be actually a very positive thing in a lot of ways to, to remember that it can be your last time doing anything, anything that you do and to, to cherish that and to, to say the things that matter and to, to let those who do matter know is a very valuable reminder but I guess sort of the latter half of it is just, it digs into some some very interesting intellectual space about what it means to die and, and the continuity of, of a subjective experience and how that uh, in some ways might be a bit illusory because all we ever really know is, is what we experience. We don't experience anything before or after and sort of comparing death to falling asleep and waking back up and how we're always changing and what it would really mean to be, what it would really mean for what would have to change, how much really would have to change for us to consider ourselves dead and a new person born and how much that really matters if there is this sort of continuous subjectivity, there is this continuous conscious subjectivity, is that, is there death? in in light of that and i'm probably not representing it that well and that's why i'll stop but definitely check it out it was very thought-provoking for me and, and it's it uh, i think it's worth a listen if you at all care about life or death so yeah so i think i will leave it at that i guess we're coming up on roughly an hour i know my timer's a little off today but yeah i again really appreciate all of you and all of you who did participate and send these questions in, I still have a lot of rather interesting ones that, I, that I'm excited to get to in the future and, and sort of keep this format rolling. It's, it's been a while. I think I might try working it in a little more often in the future. So yeah, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for just supporting the project in whatever extent that you do. And if I don't, if you don't hear from me before the end of the year, see you. See you never. And if I don't hear from you, if you don't hear from me, uh, and if you don't hear from me before the end of the year, happy new year. I don't know. Not really sure why that would be happy per se, just another day, but <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'll get into that if I record again before everything changes. All right. I should stop, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. Keep doing what you do. You are awesome. See you next time. So if you've made it this far, Hopefully it's because this project has resonated with you in some way and added value to your life. And if so, it would be great if you could take that next step to do any of the things that people are always asking you to do. Subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share with a friend, give us a follow on social. I know it can feel like a chore, I get it, but it is all rather simple and easy, <laughs> a lot easier than listening to this whole episode. So any support really does mean a lot to me and goes a long way towards helping this show and its message grow. The simple fact that you're still listening at this point already makes this whole thing worth it for me. Anything else is just gravy. Remember, again, please do send your questions and topics to at ImpostorsAnon on Instagram and Twitter. I welcome them all and would love to hear from you. And oh, if you could be interested in coming on this very show, shoot us a message. Seriously, 
there are no requirements. I'm always looking for new guests with unique perspectives. I don't care about how many followers you have or where you went to school, and I certainly don't want to read your resume. I just like having interesting, candid conversations. So why not? You're all already a part of this project in my eyes, but I'll give it a rest for today. Thanks again. Your perspective is valuable, and I'll see you next time.